This is Steve Kim. Wesley Hoff. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you speak the language of our culture and address questions raised with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Today, I'm with Wes again. It's always a treat to talk to you because you have the kind of expertise that Andy and I don't. I mean, not that we're completely ignorant about scripture, but man, like you take it to the next level. And so we always enjoy having you on the podcast, working with you, those kinds of things. Seriously, man, if it were up to me, I would adopt you. So with that said, today we want to talk about Christmas because tis the season. Now, Christians tend to be very familiar with the nativity story, right? Out of all the Bible stories, this is one that Christians are most familiar with because we kind of celebrate it every year with this big holiday and whatnot. But I think because of the familiarity, sometimes we lose the wonder of it all, I think. And we often forget just how big of a scandal this actually was. And so we want to talk about the scandal of Christmas and talk about it on three different levels, politically, culturally, and theologically. Now, let's touch on the political scandal first. Now, I've, I see this a little bit more easily in Matthew's account, what with King Herod and how he's basically trying to assassinate Jesus and those kinds of things. So, would you mind fleshing that out for our listeners? Yeah, I think there's definitely a a narrative within Matthew that the roles are being reversed within how we understand rulers and dominions uh, here on earth, uh, particularly with there's a census by the leader of the known world, Caesar Augustus. Then you, you have different characters um, who are presented as as leaders and yet at the exact same time the true king of kings is being born in a manger there's there's a flipping of the roles there and as i mentioned last time on the podcast the announcement of this is given to shepherds who are not they're not statesmen they're not politicians they're not people of any sort of high status within um, either the Roman or Jewish society. And yet the angels appear to them and say, do not be afraid. Listen carefully, for I proclaim to you good news that brings great joy to all the people. Today, your Savior is born in the city of David. He is Christ the Lord. Now, there is an interesting correlation with the birth announcement of Caesar Augustus in the sense that the birth announcement of Caesar Augustus does have a little bit of a parallel. The language isn't exactly the same, but it does say something to the effect of today in the city of Rome, a savior who is born, who's the son of a God. And so there's this subtle, at least I think that the original reader would have picked up on the fact that uh, in the city of Rome, uh, the leader of the world was, was born and there was a very public birth announcement and yet the savior of the world for all time was born in, in a small town, Bethlehem, in a uh, very inconsequential geographical area, Judea, during this time, and born in a very lowly place, you know, uh, among the, the herd animals with 
the original audience being shepherds, uh, there's a, there's a flipping of what we expect and even what the Jews expected the Messiah to be, to be this great warrior and conqueror who would come. Um, and that obviously comes to its final fruition at the cross, where as the cultural expectation was that the Messiah would overthrow the Roman power, um, not be murdered by the Roman power. And so it, it starts right at the beginning of this um, political scandal of the one who truly is in charge uh, being born as a, a child in, in a very lowly status uh, in a very tumultuous time um, during uh, a lot of political upheaval. Maybe we can uh, we can relate with that. A lot of uh, political upheaval and um, uh, not so much uh, moving around geographically, but uh, <laughs> uh, just a lot of unknowns uh, about what was happening in and around the world and how things would pan out. And um, that's that's when Jesus is born. Speaking of that reversal of roles, too, and what I found interesting reading the account in Matthew, for example, is here come the magi or the wise men, which, by the way, Scripture doesn't say exactly how many there there were. And traditionally, uh, we count them as three because of the three gifts that were given to Jesus. But anyway, the, the wise men come from the east, and they're looking for the king of the Jews, and they're asking King Herod. And I found it interesting because, I mean, King Herod is literally the king of the Jews here, put in place by Caesar. And here come the Magi going, okay, well, we're looking for the one who was born the king of the Jews. And so, I mean, King Herod, I, I understand he was a super paranoid kind of a guy. He really held his power dear, and he wasn't afraid to even kill off members of his own family to protect his power. And yet, here are wise men from the East looking for the one who was born king of the Jews. I mean, I, I think that would have been really scandalous even to King Herod himself, hey? Yeah, well, King Herod was the one who uh, rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, expanded the Temple Mount uh, towards the north. And so he saw himself as, you know, this hero of the Jewish people. But uh, like, like you mentioned, Steve, he was paranoid. Um, he murdered a number of his own family members because he thought that they uh, were a threat to his power. So he was a he was a very polarizing character and um, was not a very popular character for the time within his his reign in Judea, um, which just adds to a lot of the just um, feeling of of uneasiness. You know, you know, Mary and her little family might not have been dealing with election uncertainty and a global pandemic. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, you know, they did have Emperor Augustus flexing his despotic muscles in a worldwide census that was designed to extract more taxes. I mean, that's yeah. the purpose of it, right? From his vassal states. And you had you had this guy, Herod the Great, a man who had killed his own children out of paranoia uh, and thought nothing of doing it. And then thinking nothing of doing the same thing to the infants of Bethlehem. Um, and, and even you think of, of the, the unplannedness of Mary's pregnancy to begin with. And then she has to 
make this journey of what's approximately 120 kilometers uh, from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which they most likely did on foot. You know, we have the, on the Christmas cards, we have a picture of her riding a donkey. Um, that's not actually from, we assume that, um, but that you don't get that from the scriptural passage. And then when the, the, the soon to be expecting couple arrives, what happens? Well, there's no room. There's no room in the city. So, so the whole story is, it's very strange and it's very, very mixed. You have expectation, sadness and joy. Um, but a lot of, uh, high emotions, um, anxiety and strife that I, I think, uh, maybe we can relate to in our, our current circumstances. And I think part of this that the gospel writers want to emphasize this strangeness. In Luke, it's interesting, he repeats, as I'm just looking at the passage, he repeats the words in a manger uh, three times in very quick succession. So you see it in 2.7 and then uh, 2.12 and 2.16. I don't think Luke is being repetitive. I think he's actually making a point. So we're so used to seeing the image of baby Jesus lying in the manger uh, that we we don't see the abject strangeness of the setting. Yeah, it's almost like he's saying, in a manger, in a manger, get it? In a manger, right? Yeah, and I, I was while you were talking, I was trying to think of a modern equivalent. Like, I don't know if this is a one-to-one comparison, but if we think of... Jesus being born in an outhouse or Jesus being born in like a public bathroom, something that we're like, like, I don't, that's not the place. It's not the most sanitary place. It's not the most comfortable place. It's not the place anybody, any woman should be giving birth. But that's, that's what Luke is talking about here. There is, there's a little bit of a shock factor to it. The, the God himself steps on the stage at the lowest point on earth, an infant and then squeezed out of the guest room, regulated to a place where the, the animals are sleeping. Before we continue, a message from Andy. I want to thank those of you who gave to our Double Your Impact campaign. We are so thankful for your generosity. The last day to see your donation matched is December 31st. In the new year, I want to invite you to join Steve and myself on a literary expedition. While doing my PhD research, I came across an unpublished lecture by Michael Polanyi in which he references two books that impacted his faith in the aftermath of World War II, The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis and The Annihilation of Man by Leslie Paul. To my knowledge, this is an unexplored area of research, and I want to invite you to join us on this literary journey. We first plan to read and discuss The Abolition of Man. There will be guest lectures and interviews along the way. For more information and to sign up, visit ApologeticsCanada.com. On behalf of Apologetics Canada, I want to wish you and your family a hopeful Christmas. Now back to our show with Steve and Wesley. And so then this this kind of touches on not just the political scandal, but this is also the theological scandal of it, right? That God himself stepped down. And if you think about the irony of it, right? Here's God, almighty God, El Shaddai, right? He's the almighty God. And yet he comes to us, how? As a, as a helpless babe, somebody who actually needs to be taken care of, needs to be fed, needs to be clothed. Like he he was dependent, right? The the all sufficient one became dependent 
Um, I think it's just in the mind of, just in the Jewish mindset too, like the, I think, I would think that this would have been quite scandalous to them. Yeah, definitely. This this certainly isn't the way I think they they thought in any capacity how the Messiah was stepping on the stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, they were looking for somebody who would come with power and might to overthrow Rome. Certainly not a carpenter's son born in a in a manger in a stable. And and then too, like I think the even. Because earlier you were looking at sort of the bigger picture of things, like you didn't just stop at the virgin birth, but you were kind of moving forward, looking forward to the cross, right? And here is the Messiah, here is God himself. If this had been a pagan God, there's no way that this would have happened, right? Uh, When a pagan God came, like say, you know, Zeus, right? I heard that in the Greco-Roman world, the saying God loves you was not a good sign because it was usually a prelude to a rape of some sort. And Zeus was notorious for that sort of thing where he comes, he takes the form of a man and then he will violate women. Um, Those kinds of things where, you know, gods would come and sort of have their way and then they would go on their merry way. But here is God most high who comes down as a helpless babe and then he ends up suffering with and for us, really culminating, everything culminating on the cross, his death and resurrection. That also seems like a really sort of, it's not what you would expect of a God. Yeah, and I think if we think about the interpretations of Christmas that we hear at this time of year from politicians, from clergy, uh, from advertisers and journalists, I think we might benefit from the role reversal narrative of of the Christmas story uh, about God scattering the proud and bringing down unjust rulers and lifting up the humble. Because I think what we see here is a narrative of God turning things upside down, which is ironically the right way up to begin with. If we, you know, go back to the God um, of the Old Testament who loves his people uh, despite them continually rebelling uh, against him and is um, full of, of mercy and steadfast love. Very unlike the love you described uh, with the Greco-Roman world. Uh, the the love of, of the God of Israel is, is quite different. And, and God accomplishes this not from on high, like some uh, decree of Augustus, or even the brutality of Herod. Instead, what we see is God achieving his purposes from below in the lowliness of a manger with shepherds and livestock and foreign magi as the, as the first witnesses. Christmas in that sense, I think is, is about turning things upside down. And, you know, every detail about the Christmas story ends the subsequent story of Jesus's life as he goes on. Uh, states that God will reverse the mess and do so by first getting down and getting his own hands dirty, uh, which is not something you find in any other religious worldview or secular worldview, modern or ancient. Uh, God conquers in scripture by humbling himself and he heals by being wounded and he, he saves by sacrificing Yeah, and it's interesting that you bring that up about God getting his hands dirty, because this kind of connects with the cultural scandal that this might have been, in the sense that 
in the pagan world, the the sort of the proto-Gnostic kind of an idea was that you as a human being are really a spirit that's trapped inside this body that's trying to escape, that anything physical is really, it's less than, it's not good, right? And so you're constantly trying to suppress your flesh, so to speak. It's not a good thing to be, you want to you want your spirit to go to that higher plane of existence. And so, for example, Plato's world of the forms, so to speak, right? And that's the goal in this kind of a worldview. But then here are a bunch of Christians claiming that God himself came down into the body. Not that God, you know, just kind of stayed as a spirit or even like somehow got trapped into the body, but then escaped. Nothing like that. Like he voluntarily put on flesh and he came to us in that way. Got his hands dirty, like you said earlier. Yeah, uh, I, I think I think that sort of goes with the theme of what we've been talking about this whole time. The manger is a, is a throne, uh, even though it would not have been understood as that. That would have been seen as, as very strange and maybe even offensive. And what that lowly throne does is it works as a beacon of how God intends to turn everything upside down. And so grace triumphs over dominance and mercy over force. And uh, you see the cultural expectations of what politicians should be, about what rulers uh, should look like, uh, about how how conquering physically in the world is temporary. You see that coming together. And then with the narrative of, of joy piercing through the sorrow and sadness uh, fully and forever, you know, all of the mixed feelings of the the Holy Family in a very tumultuous time coming together with the birth of of Jesus and similarly on the cross all of the tumultuous feelings with the disciples um, thinking they were following they were disciples of the Messiah and then him being uh, murdered and just the uneasiness about that uh, being pierced with the joy of the resurrection I think there's some very powerful uh, emotional themes that come through at both Christmas and Easter that we see in scripture uh, that uh, subvert a lot of our expectations. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up. Thank you so much, listeners, for joining me and Wesley. You've been listening to another edition of the AC Podcast. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada. And we'll come back next week with more stuff to think about. In the meantime, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.